and welcome to another Aspen podcast. My name is Peggy Gunter, and I'm the Special Projects Consultant at Aspen. Today, our topic is supplementing human milk for term infants experiencing growth failure, a guide for clinicians. Our special guest is Olivia Mayer, who's a dietitian from Palo Alto, California. Olivia has extensive experience in the nutritional care of infants. Welcome, Olivia, and let's get started. First, can you talk about the importance of human milk to term infants? Sure. Thank you, Peggy and Aspen, for asking me to be here today. I'm really honored and excited to talk about this. So human milk is the most perfect food for human babies, not only for hydration and macronutrients, but for micronutrients and bioactive components that help build and strengthen a baby's immune system. The nutrients are in forms that are most easily digested and absorbed to promote that somatic growth, brain development, bone mineralization, and help baby fight off infections. Both the WHO and now the AAP support exclusive breastfeeding through six months of life, up through two years of age with complementary foods, as long as desired by the breastfeeding parent and child. Direct breastfeeding is also an important part of bonding for the mother or breastfeeding parent and the baby. They will learn the baby's cues and the act of breastfeeding in a skin-to-skin manner can help with relaxing both mom and baby, enable colonization of the baby's skin with the mother's friendly bacteria, thus providing more protection against infection, and it stimulates the release of hormones to support breast milk production. Many observational studies have shown infants who receive more of their own mom's milk were less likely to develop atopic dermatitis, other food allergies, fewer ear infections, less asthma, et cetera. And if direct breastfeeding is not possible, which we'll talk about later, providing human breast milk in a bottle is the next best option for feeding a newborn. Great, thank you. So we're talking about growth failure. It's also known as failure to thrive and turn infants. Can you explain what happens? That's a great question. And the short answer is sometimes we don't know. And those are very scary words for parents to hear. No parent wants to hear that their child is, is failing to grow or failing to thrive. Now, the definition of growth failure or failure to thrive is essentially that poor growth velocity in infants. A term infant, if they're gaining less than 20 grams per day, if their length growth velocity is less than 0.8 centimeters per week, and their head circumference growth is less than 0.38 centimeters per week, or overall their growth velocity is below 75% of desired goal. Very early on in their newborn life, a weight loss of 8 to 10% on day of life five or later is also indication of growth failure. And over two weeks of age, we define it as a decline of weight for age Z-score of greater than one. Some babies may have higher energy expenditure for unknown reasons, or if maybe they're going through a cold and have some respiratory issues, they might have greater energy use. Uh, and sometimes what we'll call some babies inefficient breastfeeders, there might be some sort of stress and they just might not be as relaxed and therefore expending more energy to actually feed. Sometimes a feeding specialist or an IBCLC or another lactation educator can help with positioning and what some people might call inefficient breastfeeders, but also sometimes referrals to GI or even neurology can help investigate for other reasons. So that leads us to talking a little bit more about some common breastfeeding challenges for both the mother and infant. You talked about some for the infant um, with other illnesses, but can you elaborate on that? Sure. 
there are many, and I'm probably going to miss some, but I'll, I'll try to hit the, the most common ones. In terms of challenges for both mom and baby, I'm going to start with premature delivery. When that happens, mom's hormones and body are, what I say, not ready for producing milk and sort of have that delayed secretion, delayed onset of the milk, quote, coming in. And for those premature babies, uh, not only might they be sick and have, be intubated, um, but they also are uncoordinated and unable to perform that suck, swallow, breathe reflex that they need to feed efficiently and safely. A lot of other times sort of could be seen as both a mother-baby dyad challenge would be inadequate frequency of breastfeeding and incomplete emptying of the breast where the baby feeds, but mom's breast doesn't quite feel empty which will in turn signal to mom that maybe her body shouldn't make as much milk, which then might cause her to make less milk than the baby actually needs. And that's something we'll again talk about in a little bit. But that, those are the two that I sort of see as mother-baby dyad challenges. For mom, if she's over 35 or advanced maternal age, she may have difficulty producing sufficient milk, overweight. Um, if she experienced extreme blood loss during delivery, which may have injured the pituitary gland, which then affects prolactin levels and hormonal regulation, that can also really diminish her ability to provide milk. If she has an existing thyroid or endocrine dysfunction, uh, I know moms with diabetes, like type 1 diabetes or, or long-term diabetes, there's some debate. Uh, there are some studies that suggest she may not produce sufficient milk or have delayed onset. There are other anecdotes that they might not have problem. So it really depends on her blood sugar control and her as an individual. Again, for mom, if she's separated from her baby due to the baby being in the NICU, not being able to directly breastfeed can affect long-term challenges for breastfeeding directly. If mom has a history of breast surgery, if she has inverted nipples, if she develops mastitis or other nipple injury and pain, and sometimes moms are on medications or even chemotherapy, which are known to be transmitted in milk and therefore unsafe for baby. So using tools for mom, like nipple everters, which are like little suction cups that help pull the nipple out to point outwards, can be helpful for mom with inverted nipples. And if mom has mastitis or nipple pain or injury, quick attention and treatment for it is very important. She may be able to continue to breastfeed through all of this, uh, depending on her comfort level and tools. For some injury uh, to nipples, sometimes I'll recommend moms using breast shields to provide an extra barrier layer uh, and help her continue to breastfeed through those pain. But sometimes the nipple shield makes it a little more bearable um, and provides a little more protection of her nipple and her body. Sometimes if mom has to return to work shortly after birth, that can be an issue here in Northern California. Um, a lot of my moms were agricultural workers and did not have maternity leave. And in order for the family's financial needs, she had to return to work as soon as she could. And that really impedes breastfeeding. Sometimes there are also internal or social struggles for mom. She may have a history of sexual abuse or she may be afraid to fail. A lot of moms feel a lot of pressure to breastfeed perfectly. And, and sometimes that fear or anxiety can really also impede her ability to produce enough milk. Or she might be scared to breastfeed in public or even in front of family members. Or sometimes mom just don't want to for whatever reason. And our role really is to educate, encourage, support, and be a cheerleader. But the decision is ultimately up to her. For baby, 
We talked about prematurity. And I argue also late prematurity, those babies born between 34 and 37 weeks, they might look and act like a term baby, but really a lot of times these babies are actually the ones readmitted with failure to thrive. They might be more sleepy, so need to be woken up and really put on a feeding schedule to guarantee at least eight to 12 feeds a day. They also might need some chin support or positioning support to help them breastfeed adequately and efficiently. Babies with oral anomalies, such as lip or tongue tie, or even a cleft lip or palate. And those babies might require a special nipple from on a bottle in order to create suction to orally feed. Like I said earlier, being a sleepy baby or even reflux can interfere with breastfeeding if it's really bad and, and bothers the baby enough. So it's really important to, to look for help as soon as possible. Um, and whether that's through using tools or positioning and talking with experts of how to optimize that is really the first place to start. Thanks, that's great. Can you outline when to initiate supplemental formula in the breastfed infant with growth failure? What are those indications that you might outline for us? Sure. In my opinion, really supplementing sooner is better. We know that the first 1,000 days of a human's life are incredibly important for neurodevelopmental outcomes, and good nutrition is one of the biggest contributing factors, if not the biggest, um, for optimizing not only somatic growth, but brain development. And I remind caregivers, if and when the need arises, that supplementing with formula may not be a forever thing. They're not necessarily locked into doing this all the way through the first year of life. It may be for a month or two or three to help them get sort of what we might say back on track, back on their growth curve and minimize their risk for chronic malnutrition. So for term healthy babies that are going to their pediatrician appointments, growth tracking is very important. And if an infant shows weight loss between visits or essentially no weight gain between appointments, I would recommend they come in for weight checks two times a week. And if that doesn't improve after one week, start supplementation. I really would not let it go longer than a week in order to, to make sure we stay ahead of the curve, ahead of the game. If a baby continues to show signs of hunger at home, you know, after mom has breastfed and she feels like her, her breasts are empty and the baby's crying, rooting, and just inconsolable after breastfeeding, that might also be a sign that they need more to eat. And in that case, you might just supplement with a normal term formula at 20 calories per ounce. You may not necessarily need a higher concentrated formula. Um, or if mom is choosing to exclusively pump and she's not able to produce enough volume, again, start supplementing. Mom can also try galactagogues, which are either medications or supplements um, or foods even to try to increase her supply. But that may take a few weeks to see if she really notices an increase in her volume. Terrific. So now that we talk about the ways we, that we want to supplement, can you give us some examples, some ways to supplement the infant in these circumstances and what's really important to note? Well, the first thing is not every mother, baby, family, baby, dyad is the same. Uh, it really is important to understand all of the different situations. And so the first thing I do, it's really important to keep breast or chest feeding, including pumping, as long as mom is able and safe to continue to do that so that she can continue to stimulate her milk production and try to keep that up as much as possible. Sometimes 
we might recommend or, or moms might ask first if they can try hind milk. Some parents see the suggestion of, of starting formula as evil or scary or somehow might hurt their baby for whatever reason they, they might think. And so they want to try hind milk. Uh, so breast milk has four milk and hind milk. Four milk is the first milk produced that's higher in water and lactose, whereas hind milk is the milk that sort of comes at the end of a feeding, is higher in fat and caloric density. Uh, there's no perfect timing. It's not like four milk ends after five or 10 minutes and hind milk starts then. It's really a, a, more of a fluid thing. But, but in general, uh, what moms might do first would be to breastfeed for five or 10 minutes, then pump, and then use the pumped milk as a bottle after to feed that, make sure that hind milk gets into the baby, those extra calories. I've also heard of moms pumping first for five to 10 minutes to get out the four milk and then directly breastfeed. So that's, that's one way to even use, you know, you might, you might say it's nature's way of supplementing calories through breast milk. Historically, clinicians frequently recommended for mom to pump and add powdered formula to her milk. These sprinkles are maybe half a teaspoon up to a teaspoon or so per ounce and are given in every single bottle with the theory being that, well, at least the baby's getting 100% of feeds from breast milk, so that must be best for the baby. When the reality is that it's extremely time-consuming for mom, labor-intensive, and depending on what kind of pump she has, maybe it's not enough to keep her supply up, like if she only has a hand pump. I really see advantages in providing supplemental bottles of direct formula or formula only. Number one, it really allows other caregivers to feed the baby and have that special bonding time with either the non-breastfeeding parent or grandparents or even siblings maybe. And so using those supplemental bottles in conjunction with direct breastfeeding continue so that the mother-baby dyad bond also helps to keep her supply up. Number two, it provides more consistent nutrition. Since we know exactly what is in the formula for those maybe two to four feeds a day, maybe even five bottle feeds a day, we know exactly what the baby's getting. When we calculate the using the sprinkles method or adding formula powder to human milk, our estimations are just that, they're estimations. We make a lot of assumptions about the caloric density of mom's milk and they actually may be wrong. Unfortunately, both of these do mean additional cost to parents, which could be a burden on families. And so that is something to, to take into consideration. Depending on the degree of growth failure, I commonly recommend starting with two to three feeds of straight formula per day and direct breastfeeding all the other feeds. And I usually will recommend starting with a 24 calorie per ounce formula. I recommend weight checks three to four days later. And if the baby has gained more than they were at that previous appointment, I would spread out the weight checks to one times per week. If they did not gain as much as you want or, or at all by the following weight check three to four days later, I would then increase to 26 or 28 calories per ounce. Uh, and then eventually sometimes even up to 30 calorie per ounce, depending on the baby, the growth situation and mom supply. Sometimes if mom supply is starting to dwindle and the baby's growth is faltering, I like to look at these supplemental bottles as mom's breast milk extenders, if you will. Um, yes, it is displacing breast milk from the baby's diet, but it is 
continuing to allow mom to breastfeed and, and pump. But these three or four bottles, five bottles, um, also help sort of fill in the gap when, if she doesn't have sufficient volume. Sometimes parents, if they're amenable, it, which is rare actually in my experience, uh, a parent could use what's called a supplementary nursing system or S&S. And what that you could do is it comes in a bottle, although there's homemade contraptions you can find on the internet using a, a store-bought bottle and nipple. But what you will do is attach a feeding tube to one end of the bottle and the very tip of it, you will tape to mom's nipple and on her breast. And that way in the bottle that will be hanging, you can put a higher calorie formula. And that way when mom is doing direct breastfeeding, the baby will also get some higher calorie formula from that feeding tube. Uh, so that's another way, but that again, requires more equipment is a little bit labor intensive, requires some balancing and usually is not a one person job. Usually it's a two person job. Uh, so if they have extra time and can get the extra supplies and preparation, that's another option, but that's not as common as just using individual bottles. This is great. You've provided a lot of different options and they're all very logical. And I, I like the idea of treating each infant and mother individually. This is great. So now, um, considering some of the issues of infant formula supply chain and also the cost of formula, um, there seem to be some challenges to clinicians to encourage families to supplement when needed. Can you talk a little bit about those socioeconomic issues? Sure. Uh, the formula industry is, is very interesting. I've always been a little fascinated by it. So the federal laws aimed at protecting and guiding formula production here in the U.S. are from the early 1980s. And as with a lot of things, unfortunately, it seems regulation attention only happens when something goes wrong, i.e. our most current uh, situation with some contaminated infant formulas. While it's unfortunate, the attention it recently garnered may have paved the way for more international brands to be imported to the U.S., while we already do really have a wide variety of brands and formulations manufactured here and available to us in general, when it comes to needing formula for supplementation for weight gain or for inadequate breast milk supply, it really depends, again, on why you need it, where you shop, and what you can afford. If a family is dependent on WIC for formula access, that changes from state to state. There isn't a federal level of WIC formula access necessarily. It really depends on each state. So again, why do you need formula? Do you need it to supplement human milk supply versus a medical necessity? And how dramatic of a medical necessity? If is it for intolerance or documented malabsorption? We're getting into more uh, medically acute babies, but renal or liver failure, or even an inborn error of metabolism when there's too much or too little of a particular nutrient means an increased risk of seizures and or death for that baby, which is extreme, but definitely something that is a real threat when formula supply chain issues arise or contamination arises. Um, and then also how and where insurance might fit in in terms of covering it or helping to cover it. So there's so many different variables just looking at the why you need formula. And then let's say, okay, you know why you need it and now you know where to shop for it, you could go to Walmart or Target where they have entire 
aisles of options, top to bottom, floor to ceiling, or a grocery store that actually might only have a few shelves? Or do you have internet access and know where to purchase it online safely? Those are other issues that arise. A pharmacy store like a CVS or Walgreens, again, might only have a few shelves available. Or because of transportation issues, is your only option to buy it at a corner market or bodega, which is really going to have minimal options if they have them there at all. The smaller the store, the more limited the choices of, and availability. And it's definitely influenced by what the family can afford. I think some of the challenges clinicians are faced with actually start with resistance from parents. Some parents have this vision of how they should be able to support their own baby with their own milk or with donor milk if they can obtain it. And again, that somehow formula is evil or will hurt their infant's health in some way. I had parents tell me that breast milk is magical and science will never know what's in breast milk and how dare I recommend formula. Uh, and so it really took a lot of time in, in those situations to start with the why we're recommending formula. What are the risks of malnutrition and poor growth and poor developmental outcomes? And really helping them to understand why we're recommending what we are. Another challenge may be a clinician's limited knowledge regarding formulas. Let's say a general pediatrician, a general family practitioner, they may not be familiar with the various brands and what similar formulations from different brands would be equivalent and therefore likely tolerated in a similar way. Not always tolerated the same, but it is possible. We all know that practitioners are very busy. And even as a NICU RD for almost 20 years, I feel like it's impossible to keep up with formulation changes and even the branding or color changes to the labels. You know, sometimes that green label from one company does not mean that the competitor company who also uses a green label is the same or an equivalent kind of formula. During this crisis, I really found that some individual RDs made some amazing, really fabulous comparison tables that were very helpful that also included some of the European formulas. There's another a very thorough chart published by uh, NASPAGAN, um, and Aspen also has some great helpful hints, but the clinician, a general clinician, may not have these tools readily available or be able to locate them. Personally, from my experience, uh, I have two boys, and uh, when I was having supply troubles, I did feed them formula, and to be honest, I fed them three different kinds of formula, I think, over their their infant time. And fortunately, they tolerated every formula I gave them. But I also know that not every baby will tolerate formula changes as easily as my kids did. Sometimes there are very specific needs in terms of tolerance that really can make or break how well a baby feeds and grows. So I acknowledge that as well. Well, this is terrific. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Olivia Mayer for this interesting discussion and thank Nutrition North America for support of this program. Look out for two upcoming Aspen practice tools on this topic, one for clinicians and one for consumers. Thank you for listening and have a good day.